Hi there and welcome to the Spiked podcast. My name is Ella Whelan, I'm the assistant editor at Spiked and on this week's podcast I talk to Julia Hartley Brewer about the ongoing Pestminster scandal, John Holbrook about Brexit and the law and Claire Fox about the fraught nature of the transgender debate. Though the headlines have relatively calmed down, the panic around sexual harassment in Westminster is continuing. MPs are under investigation and women are being encouraged to come forward with their horror stories. Pestminster, as it's now known, was of course inspired by the Harvey Weinstein expose, but it took on a life of its own after Kneegate, the story of Michael Fallon drunkenly touching a woman's knee under the table at dinner, and Fallon has since stepped down from his role as Defence Secretary. So... Is this where it all started? And more importantly, where is it all going? To find out, I spoke to the owner of the infamous knee, Julia Hartley Brewer, journalist, broadcaster and talk radio host, who has been extremely critical of what she calls the Westminster witch hunt. So Julia, the Pestminster scandal has now been raging for about three weeks, I think, and it was uh, arguably all kicked off by your now infamous knee, <laughs> what's now known as Kneegate. I mean, how do you, just first of all, how do you feel about this? How has it unsettled you how much something from the past has now blown up into basically a moral panic gripping politicians? Yes, as opposed to gripping my knee. Um, I, you know, I, I actually feel, and I'm not in a victim shamey sort of way, I actually feel quite guilty about Michael Fallon's career. Um, because certainly what he did to me was absolutely long in the distance past. The story only emerged, actually, because I told it on Sky News about a year ago as a as a comment about how you can deal with these things and, for goodness sake, stop being so upset by these things, not saying it's OK. I don't threaten to punch people if I think it's OK for them to touch me without permission. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I knew that various people did know who it was, and, and I was quite cross with uh, various people, including someone else who was at the table, who uh, was prepared to reveal who it was when I felt that it was it was my business. But yeah, given that so many other stories have come out regarding certainly Sir Michael Fallon, maybe it was the case that, that it was right for that message to go out. But in terms of the big moral panic and the witch hunt, as I've described it, I'm absolutely horrified. And I think I am not alone, judging from the reaction that I have had and the reaction everyone else I know has had to, passing messages on to me. Um, most of the rest of the country thinks Westminster's gone completely stark staring mad yeah, because some of the allegations or i mean it's weird calling them allegations because actually most of the stuff that's come out isn't criminal it isn't pointing the finger mm, yeah so lo- lots of the claims that are made against MPs people are being forced ridiculous. to go into sex shops and buy dildos <laughs> yeah have been forced to go into a sex shop and buy a dildo? no i've never and i don't no, think it, funny that. most women probably wouldn't be forced i think there's there's a very uncomfortable truth at the heart of this maybe the thing that's not being talked about is that it's it's true that it's either as far as i can see aspirational politicos or uh you know well-known journalists who are coming out with these stories yourself aside i mean people who are pursuing the allegations and calling for mp's heads and thinking of kate maltby and people like that is there a kind of disconnect between the women who are making these accusations blowing it wildly out of proportion and the rest of us sat at home were kind of going what 
rolling our eyes. Yeah, I mean, this this is the thing. I think it's also, I think it's an age difference as well. I think uh, uh, older women, and, and again, it's not that we've put up with it for years. We we, we just sort of find it quite bizarre that that, that people are in any way allying. Uh, people being raped, sexually harassed, being being exploited by bosses with someone touching a knee in the bar. And I'm sorry, as much as I don't think it's acceptable for, for someone to sort of go around hugging and groping women in strangers' bar in the House of Commons, it's really easy to deal with these people. And, and I've never understood why women can't. At the same time, as never understanding it. I have always dealt with it. I've always, throughout my career, and people say, oh, because you're in your 40s. No, no, no. When I was 18, I dealt with customers when I was a waitress in exactly the same way and I've always stood up for other women I think that they there is a, something happening that they're not comfortable with um, but I do find it bizarre that, that it's being treated as this sort of oh my goodness this is terrible this has happened to me and, I, and it, it happened to me 20 years ago and I'm still crying about it every night and I've had therapy for years I mean, get a grip, people. I, I do think we are in serious snowflake territory. And in some of the women who you've named, I, you know, I'm friends with these women. I have worked with these women and I have a lot of respect for these women. And everyone's entitled to react in their own way. And of course, the sister has been quite cross with me because I didn't react in the appropriate way. I don't consider myself a victim. I didn't think that um, I needed anyone else to handle anything. Certainly nothing that had happened 15 years ago. Um, but I, I genuinely think that, yeah, I think most women in their working worlds don't sort of feel that way. When they walk in, they sort of open the door of their office or their factory floor or shop floor, that they are going to be pinned against the wall by a sexual predator, raped in the loose or, or constantly sexually harassed. That is simply not the real world. That is not what is happening. Um, Westminster is not, you know, the corridors aren't full of people running around after women to the tune of the Benny Hill show. This is just simply not in any way reflective of the reality of everyday women's lives. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about, because obviously you've worked for a long time in the world of politics and journalism and... And somehow survived. <laughs> somehow survived, but there's much talk about the toxic environment. It's rubbish. Absolute load of nonsense. Is it rubbish? Because... It's a complete load of nonsense. Of course there are sexist pigs. And there's some pretty horrible women as well. I mean, <laughs> you know, there are people, and people are not perfect, and people have their prejudices of whatever kind, whether they're class, whether they're... Uh, of accents, uh, whether they're, they're uh, their football teams, people people are all different. Um, do I think that the women are being stopped from getting ahead in Parliament? Has anyone heard of Theresa May? I mean, I mean, seriously, has anyone heard of? The, I've been told for the last three weeks we live in a patriarchal society. The the Prime Minister is a woman. The Home Secretary is a woman. The Chief of the Metropolitan Police is a woman. I mean, I can go on. <laughs> it seems to be that is blatant nonsense. Oh no, no, but they're different. They're they're different from everyone else. I I know hundreds and hundreds of successful, well-paid women who haven't for a moment put up with sexism or sexual harassment, anything they have dealt with, they have batted away. They are changing the world. The men they're married to are changing the world. And and I just think the message we are sending out, I've got a daughter who's 11 years old. The message we are sending out to young girls and young women right now is be careful out there. It's terrifying. And don't forget you're a victim because you're a woman. It's not how I was raised. It's certainly not how I'm raising my daughter. And I don't think anyone else should be sending that message out to our daughters either. But why do you think so many feminists are pushing this? And it's not an over-exaggeration to say that most feminist writers in the papers are kind of treating this like they're calling it a watershed yeah. moment. I yeah. mean, it's rubbish. No, they're not feminists. They're feministas. I constantly am told on Twitter, well, yeah, well, she's hardly a feminist, is she? I was the third female political editor of a national newspaper in this country. I've been on Question Time and everything else long before there was a let's get women on Question Time. I, I And I did it you know, the hard way by being 
bloody good at what I do. Raised by a, a mum who went to medical school with two children as a single mum uh, and, and became a GP. Uh, don't tell me I'm not a feminist. This isn't feminism. Telling women that men are evil and horrible and it's all patriarchal and women are victims all the time. That's not feminism. That's, that's Victorian age stuff. I mean, at this rate, they'll be asking us to hide our ankles again. Uh, this is nonsense. The, the, the feministas or feminazis, they have completely lost the plot when it comes to what female empowerment is about, what equality is about, and what the women of my mum's generation fought for. I, I think, frankly, it's an embarrassment. I, I could not tell you the number of text messages and emails and tweets I have had from middle-aged women who've been working hard all their lives, who fought for this when it was much tougher, when it was much tougher to get ahead, who are mortified that women claiming to be speaking in their name. Where do you see this going? Because there has obviously been Caroline Lucas uh, last week, was it, suggested that there should be consent classes for MPs. Yes, yeah, she there did. Been she some... did it on my radio show and I gave her what for. I think it's absolutely obscene. My husband does not need to be told not to rape or sexually harass women. Most men, 99.9% know this. I think it's an absolute insult and it's up there with making male university students in Freshers' Week go to, oh, by the way, remember not to rape classes. Again, all women victims, all men potential rapists. And if you're going to see the world like that, maybe you're better off just staying at home and not venturing outside the front door. I, I genuinely, I, I would march in the streets to prevent that. I think it's an absolute obscenity to suggest that men need that. The thing that I've found that's come out of this is that there is a certain type of wrong woman. There, there's I think a, it's you and me. It might be, but there's a certain view of if you are somebody, women who are bolshy, let's say, or push back or um, are confident in saying that they're not going to be pushed over by men, unless you play the victim narrative, you are the wrong kind of woman. I mean, does that not sit well with you? No, it doesn't sit well with me at all. But what's so fascinating about these women talking about what a real feminist is, well, they should go and get proper jobs. They're all, ugh, as, far as, as far as I can tell, none of them earns enough to pay a mortgage. I'm sorry, I'm doing a proper job every day. I'm out there, talk radio, which is supposed to be a preserve of men. I was a political editor for National Paper, the preserve of men for many years, being a political commentator, preserve of men for many years. Um, I think that makes me more of a feminist than someone whinging on about, uh, a, you know, gender identity and feminism in, you know, in, in, a, in a former polytechnic somewhere in Norwich. I'm sorry. I, I think these people are completely and utterly out of touch. They're out of touch with, with men and women. And they are doing men and women a huge disservice. Feminism wasn't about women being victims and it wasn't about men being nasty. It was about equality. That's all it is. But they don't want equality. They want women to be treated as little special snowflakes. I'm not a little special snowflake. You aren't. No woman listening to this ride is. My 11-year-old isn't and never will be. And we want to be treated as equals. And if you're saying, basically, any woman at any time can point her finger and go, oh, I didn't like the way you spoke to me or you touching me, even if it was, you know, a pat on the back. And the man basically can lose his career, his future, in some cases, have we seen with Carl Sargent in Wales, his life. Um, then I think you're asking for a special treatment, which is really unhealthy. And these women don't speak for me and they don't speak for the vast majority of women in this country. That was Julia Hartley Brewer on the Westminster scandal. Now for our next guest. It's hard to know where we're at with Brexit, not just because talks with Brussels have been so confused and chaotic or because of the fact that our own government is teetering on the brink of disarray, but because none of the political class seem to have understood what was at the heart of the Brexit vote, a demand for democracy. As newspaper headlines continue to bemoan the tragedy of Brexit and ardent anti-Brexiteers push for Parliament to block the withdrawal bill, where are we at? And why is Brexit still something worth fighting for? 
To find out, I spoke to writer and barrister John Holbrook. So, John, it's hard to keep up with where Brexit is at at the moment. It kind of feels like Groundhog Day sometimes because there seems to be a continual slog and not really any progress. But things are happening. So can you update us, especially in relation to Clause 1 with what's going on? Well, at the moment, what's going through Parliament is the EU withdrawal bill. And um, that's important because that will put an end to the EU's control over our laws. So there was a debate in Parliament earlier this week and Clause 1 of that bill was agreed. And Clause 1 is really very important because that says that the European Communities Act will be repealed. And that's immensely significant for anyone who believes in democracy because the European Communities Act is the act that since we entered what was then the EEC in 1973 has meant that European law is supreme over our British law. So essentially ever since that act was passed, we as a country haven't been able to determine our own laws because so many of them have been determined in Brussels. So when that bill becomes an act and it becomes law, it does mean that on the day we leave the European Union, we will be able to take back control of our laws. And Spikes has got a little day counter which says uh, how long it's been since the Brexit vote happened and I had a look at it today it's been 511 days since the Brexit result was announced and yet we're still kind of receiving intense negativity about it and I just did a quick google search this morning of Brexit and what came up was the Guardian saying that we should prepare for a no deal chaos scenario the independent says that Brexit could push the UK off security off a cliff edge and then obviously there was Michel Barnier earlier this week talking about the fact that Brits wouldn't be allowed to bring their pets on holiday with them so you know 511 days in there's still the continual barrage of you know Brexit is terrible Brexit is disaster why are we doing this so why do you think there there is still this continual kind of downplaying of the positives of Brexit well i think it's important to distinguish between the remainers and the remoners i think a lot of people who voted remain the 48% have accepted that that britain must do what the majority wanted and hence leave the eu the problem really comes with this much narrower strata of people who I call the Ramonas, who, who I think have had a vested interest in, in the European Union. If not a direct vested interest, then a belief in the idea that it's right to constrain British democracy. And I think the thought of us leaving the EU and taking back control over our own laws really frightens them because it means doing things in a way which we've never done before. So they're the people who are fighting tooth and nail to do whatever they can to frustrate, and what they ultimately want to do is to prevent Brexit from happening. And I think they do tend to um, exert undue influence, and we, we see that in Parliament. Uh, although 52% of the people voted to leave, only 25% of MPs in that last Parliament supported leave. So Parliament has not been representative of the people, and I think that's illustrative of the problem, namely that there is this elite which is able to make a big fuss which is disproportionate to the sentiment which I, I believe most people in Britain feel about this issue. And you've written a piece this week for Spike, John, about the positive side of Brexit and one of the positives that you focus on is the fact that Brexit will re-establish the link between lawmakers and the people. I mean, this is something that I often get into fights with people about when you talk about the influence that the EU law has in the UK, people often say it's not the case that the EU just hands down direct law and that we're ruled by the EU. That's kind of one of the classic to and fro's that 
I often have, but you give a really nice example in the piece about um, agricultural policy. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I think agricultural policy is is an interesting uh, example of this problem because, uh, you know, I begin the piece by saying, uh, can you remember when agricultural policy was, was last debated? How many people can name the Minister of Agriculture? Uh, I think the truth of the matter is agricultural policy hasn't been debated since we entered the EU for 45 years. And there's a good reason for that, which is that there's no point in us debating it because we have no control over it. The common agricultural policy, which is determined in Brussels, means that we have no control over our agricultural policy. And that's merely one example I could give. I mean, the same applies to fisheries, exactly the same applies to trade. It it actually surprised me during the referendum campaign to to realise the significance of us as a sovereign country, supposedly, not being able to negotiate our trade deals. The same applies to freedom of movement. I think, you know, people are, are, are more familiar with that example. But there are so many areas of law where we have no control whatsoever. And then there are a great many other areas where, although we have some say, the scope for that say has been considerably restricted because of EU laws. So, I mean, people who maintain that the EU doesn't hand down laws, which we as a country have to implement, are just not living in the real world. Well, finally then, John, I am worried. Um, I'm worried about the continual tax on Brexit. I'm worried that Theresa May, our Prime Minister, is through the kind of attacks on her and infighting amongst the Tories, but also the kind of weak position she's putting forward that she is going to get less ardent in her defence of Brexit. There's lots of things going on um, that worry me about even kind of people getting sick and tired of the continuous rigmarole. You know, if any thing could have made the most exciting thing Brexit boring. It's this kind of continual bickering over the tiniest things and, uh, you know, gossiping from Brussels and all of that's going on. But why is it important to maintain the excitement, the brilliance of Brexit and remind people why it's important? For me, it's because it's all about politics. It's all about the way we do things in this country. It's all about our ability, not just to, I mean, the slogan used was take back control. And that was obviously a very important slogan. But the question is, take back control, why? And we want to take back control because we as a country want to have these issues determined by a dialogue, a continual dialogue between our leaders and the people. We want to ensure that any policies, any laws which are passed are those that we have debated and approve. And I think one of the problems that's dogged politics since the Second World War is that Our political class has never really embraced democracy. It's a bit like Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. And the problem is, is that if you fundamentally believe that, then you're always going to look for ways to fetter democracy. And that's essentially what's happened with the EU project. The political class found a way of constraining political debate. Now, I think Churchill was wrong. I think democracy is the best form of government. And that's the possibility that we have once we leave the EU, because then we will be in a position to ensure that we do have full control over all of our laws and all of our policies. That was John Holbrook on why Brexit is still brilliant. Now for our final guest. This has been a big week for news on transgender politics. 
A trans performance artist criticised Topshop for not letting him change in the women's changing rooms. Some people got upset about the fact that drag queens were going to teach nursery school kids about gender in Bristol. The Church of England has called for boys to be allowed to wear tutus and tiaras. And on a more serious note, a teacher in Oxfordshire has been suspended for misgendering a trans child he called she. Discussion about these events has led to a lot of finger pointing. It seems that talking about transgender issues will more likely than not get you called a transphobe. But there are questions which have to be answered. Why are so many young people asking to transition? Is it right that whole institutions change their policy on the basis of a small minority of people? And what do we think about this politicisation of gender on the whole? To try and answer some of these questions, I spoke to the Institute of Ideas director, author of I Find That Offensive, and regular judge on the moral maze, Claire Fox. Now, Claire, you've been talking about this issue of trans and uh, the controversy around it for quite a while, and you've said that you are nervous about the discussion around transgender politics. Can you tell me why you are nervous? I think it's right that you emphasise that I'm nervous about the discussion around transgender politics rather than I've got some kind of fear of people um, having a change in the way they understand their gender. I sort of don't care about that. And, you know, I'm a liberal, I believe in freedom, and I've got no hostility at all to people expressing themselves as they wish. But what's happened is that it's become an issue which is toxic to discuss because you get closed down very quickly and called transphobic if you don't go along with a particular narrative. And secondly... I fear that a whole range of problems that young people in particular have have suddenly mixed themselves up with identity politics and some of the worst excesses of that and have presented themselves as people feeling that their existential angst about life uh, should take the form of uh, gender reassignment. And that makes me very nervous. That's not freedom. That's a kind of crisis, I think, in, in who we are and we should at least query it. And there are kind of two conversations going on when people talk about transgender politics and when people talk about being concerned about it. One is the issue of adults making choices about how they dress, whether they get surgery, all the things that go in with um, the discussion about transgender. And the other side of it, which tends to be more fraught, is the one about children and whether or not children should have interventions, as they call it, whether that be hormonal treatment or counselling or even adults, parents being told to talk to them about gender at a young age and how that affects them. And so in relation to just focusing on the kids for the moment, is it a case that actually the adults have kind of left the building? Because you of recent cases that I can think of, one is a teacher being investigated and threatened with being sacked for misgendering a kid because he called her she. The other one is that the Church of England has now come out and said that boys should be allowed to wear tiaras. So there's a kind of case of where have the adults gone and, and do the adults even believe in their own authority anymore? So I think that's a very important point because... One of the issues in relation to the transgender discussion is got a parallel actually in believe the women in Me Too or believe the victims and, and so on, which is if a child declares that they don't feel comfortable in their own body or says, I, I think I'm a boy or anything like that, instead of that being listened to, which is perfectly reasonable, I'm not suggesting one slaps them across the face and tells them to go home, but that you actually have a situation where adult authorities and institutions are reorganising around that child's perception of something. You know, that's very disastrous for adult authority in general, because, you know, if a child says, 
I refuse to do my homework because I don't want to and it makes me feel uncomfortable. One tends to say, yes, moving on, do your homework. I don't think that adult society should reorganise itself around children. I also think that for obvious reasons, if a child says, I'm a dog, you don't go out and buy the child dog food. So you've got a situation where we're being told by a particular political version of, of the transgender movement that if a child says that they are transgender, we must listen and act accordingly. But more problematically, it seems to me, there is an active intervention by institutions to go into young people's lives and tell them that they are liberating them by telling them as much as possible about the fact that their gender is not fixed. And effectively confusing the hell out of people, it seems to me. The reality of biological difference, which is male, female, is thrown up in the air, and then we impose an essentialism on characteristics that somehow seem to imply to somebody else, usually an adult, that the little boy who likes playing with dolls maybe probably indicates that they want to be a girl. Moving on to the adults, the adult discussion about it, you mentioned there that actually lot of the discussion about trans and the kind of fixed nature of gender that keeps coming up it is arguably quite reactionary because you do have a situation now where you're having what it means to be a woman that question of what it means to be a woman is you know is extremely difficult and actually I'm very unhappy with a lot of the stuff that's coming out it seems to me that sometimes what it means to be a woman in terms of transgender is yeah wearing a dress or not being a boy in terms of not liking football and there's these kind of really old school definitions of gender that are coming to the fore bearing in mind the fact that there has been gender bending cross-dressing drag queens around for decades and it seems that more than ever now when people are actually freer gender has become much more of a problem I mean what do you think about that anyone who's uh, hung around with anyone in the arts or alternative scenes as I have will have forever known um, cross-dressers people have experimented with not only the way they dress, but their sexuality, but the expression of their gender. And, you know, I tell you what, I've never given a damn and the people I've known have never given a damn. And and they themselves have never actually drawn attention to it. And one wouldn't comment, you know, on on everything from kind of butch women uh, uh, to effeminate uh, men. This this isn't the sort of thing where you sort of go, wow. I mean, it's become politicised. And in the course of it being politicised, it's become quite difficult because it then starts to say you know I I demand that I'm treated as a woman I I, I use the example because it really annoyed me when Sam Smith came out as uh, saying you know how can you fix my gender and then goes on to say you know because I do like a heel and I've got uh, false eyelashes and loads of makeup in my and I thought oh great so you you see your kind of feminine side is coming out in a heel I mean I've never worn a heel in my life so I, 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 I find that sort of aspect of the I can inhabit what it means to be a woman because I can wear women's clothes. To be deeply unsympathetic to what it means to be a woman, which is which is not that I'm fixated on the biology of it, but from a political point of view, the experience of being a woman was a girl and growing up as a woman. Not something you can just kind of wear a pair of heels and know what it feels like. I know that that's the kind of thing which older feminists have got in real trouble for saying, but I think it's just true well finally then Claire obviously you've written about this in your book the kind of culture of you can't say that and I think it's not felt more sharply anywhere else than in relation to the transgender debate because it is like walking on eggshells talking about this and no matter how much you kind of express the fact that you don't mean anyone any harm and you want to be as sympathetic as possible there is a real 
a climate of censorship around transgender politics you are either called a turf or a transphobe or whatever the word is some kind of bigoted person if you call into question this particular political discussion obviously you believe in free speech and the institute of ideas champions free speech but especially in relation to this political hot political discussion which is not going to resolve itself anytime soon why do you think it's actually important for all of us to discuss it even if that means risking kind of having your head on the block it's the one issue that really has pathologized dissent i i I feel more than anything else even when i'm talking to you you know i'm kind of thinking am i misgendering am i saying him he she Uh, you know even though there's no pressure on me to do that in this but i i think that one feels uh, a kind of tut-tutting behind you all the time and knowing that this is going to be picked up and used against you. And I think that that is, you know, illiberal and censorious and dangerous at any level. You then get actually very serious implications of this because, ironically, you'll get people, and this is now becoming more of an issue, who are actually the experts who work with, for example, uh, uh, in gender clinics and people who work with uh, people who have gender dysphoria who are trying to understand for example, why there's an increase in the number of people presenting themselves to the Tavistock Clinic or the number of young people seeing gender as an issue for them in terms of their identity, who are looking at issues around why there is a a, a correlation, not necessarily causation, between mental health issues, autism sometimes, ADHD, uh, gender dysphoria, all of these things. These things need to be investigated, talked about, explored. So if you're part of the trans community and I say that in inverted commas because there are many trans people who don't go along with the trans community version of what that means but if you're actually interested genuinely concerned about the gender issue you'd want this to be explored you'd want there to be open debate and discussion but um, you will actually have academics who are not able to pursue their academic work refused grants uh, uh, called transphobic for even asking the questions. You know, senior medics like uh, the guy in uh, Canada losing their job, hounded out because they didn't go along with one version. And they're the very people who are working with people who are transgender, who we need to actually uh, uh, go to them for some expertise and some insights. So that's sort of very serious. The other thing, though, is is that because you get a spurious pseudo kind of evidence emerging. I mean, in this discussion on trans, I keep hearing people talking about the feminine and the masculine brain, the pink and the blue. What? I mean, this is a pseudo-scientific quackery of the worst sort. And if it's not, then I want to see the evidence and I want to be able to debate it. But of course you can't. These things get dropped into the conversation. Anyone who says, just run that past me again, are you seriously telling me that you think there's brains hardwired in for trans that are pink or blue and therefore actually you're going to tell me now that biologically femininity and masculinity which are social constructs are in fact biological i want to challenge that when i look at it you're not able to because you get closed down for being uh, transphobic and finally because i think that there's a danger with this fashion for it and with i think almost an incitement of the young to see their problems through the prism of gender um that young people will get trapped. I mean, you know, if you if you end up being elected as some poster boy for, for transgender at 15 uh, by the campaigners, say you want to change your mind, right? Say you want to challenge it. Say you want... I mean, this is... And I'm not even now talking about the terrible 
consequences of self-mutilation, which is what it is, which is why I think if you're going to do it, you need to be serious about it, or taking hormonal drugs that will make you infertile. I'm not even talking about the medical interventions. I'm talking about the psychological interventions of the whole of society reorganising themselves about the fact that you at 14 said, actually, I'm not Josephine, I'm Joseph. Anyone reorganising around, and then you might want to go, God, that might be Josephine again, by the way like a couple of years down the line, because, you know, we've all had that phase. I mean, I've had, fa- I mean, God knows how many phases I had when I was at school. Thankfully, adult society didn't reorganise themselves around my whims or my great profound insights of what I thought I was or, or what have you. People held their nerves. Now, again, you need an open and free debate that will allow the young to explore the fact that, as Joseph, I, I want to be called Josephine. And to be honest with you, I don't mind that. I don't kind of care about that. I mean, you know, I might call him Josephine or I might not, right? I, 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 that's a kind of matter of politeness or, 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 or what have you. But what I will not have is that we are demanded that we do that, never question it, because actually that traps Joseph as Josephine forever. I do think that there is a very big question for all of us to ask in society, which is why our young people are so angst-ridden about their identity in this way and they're angst-ridden about their biological identity it seems to me that if you're so self-obsessed that all you can think about is what gender you are and you're not the right gender and even when people say well I'm gender fluid how dare you you just think haven't you got something better to think about read a book you know get out there the world is to be changed there's politics out there people are narcissistically demanding everything is about them and their confusions about their gender and and I but I think there's a big question to ask as to why we're not inspiring teenagers to think about something more interesting than themselves and their gender. You've been listening to the Spike podcast. To get your daily dose of spiked opinion, head to spiked-online.com, subscribe to our podcast feed, and if you would like to help Spiked continue to thrive, please be sure to make a donation. Thanks for listening.